Be seated. Thank you, Keevan. Good job. All the other elders are really angry that you got that one. A little tough, right? Yeah, like Keevan pointed out, there's really nothing in our correspondence to help us understand the Trinity. We have a few illustrations, but as they say, when you try to make an illustration walk on all fours, it falls flat. And so, Keevan, you did a good job. Thank you so much for doing that. And I would encourage you, as you take that insert, uh, that's each statement of uh, the affirmation of faith of our church, and just read that through and you have time. You may not understand everything there, but that should raise some questions that you can ask Keevan about those things. Uh, so uh, we, are, uh, we would encourage you to do that. One of the reasons we have an affirmation of faith, especially such a lengthy and detailed one, is because the world is full of false teachers. And uh, we need to be aware of the fact that uh, we need to measure what we hear, what we read, whether it's here in this building or whether it is on uh, television or on the Internet or wherever you find yourself uh, being exposed to Christian, quote, Christian teaching. And uh, so we want you to be aware of that. And the affirmation of faith is uh, really a summary of doctrinal truths that we believe in and hold dear. Uh, I was thinking about uh, Kevin's uh, presentation about the issue of the triunity or the trinity of God. It's one of the foundations of the faith, fundamentals of the faith. And we are in chapter 2 of this of Second Peter, and uh, Peter is warning the church about false teachers who come in. And I just wanted to point out, sometimes we think, well, that was 2,000 years ago. We don't need to worry about that today. And yet, in our current scene, there are plenty of false teachers. Just this week, uh, the head of a massive organization in Christendom uh, accused one of our political candidates of not being a Christian because he was going to build a wall. And I don't know, but the last time I looked at Scripture... Uh, to become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is by grace through faith. It wasn't grace through faith, and I promise not to build any walls. And I'm not defending the candidate, by the way. I'm just saying that uh, it was an amazing statement from uh, the Pope about uh, a, a, a requirement for salvation. And so that is false teaching. I just wanted to point that out. Also, a little more closer to our statement of faith is the fact that there is, uh, in the second century, there was a heresy that was battled, and it was called modalism. Modalism was how people view God, and it was a heresy, and heretics proclaimed it. Uh, and basically what it did is it said, yes, there's a God, but he takes on the form of the Son, the form of the Holy Spirit, or the form of the Father. When he's the Father, he's not the Son or the Spirit. When he's the Son, he's not the Father or the Spirit, and so on. That's called modalism, and that's a heresy. And with us today in our current scene is something called oneness Pentecostalism. Uh, you may be aware of uh, music group Phillips, Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Okay, you may be very aware. They do some great music, I mean, very, very good music in one sense. But you'll never hear them sing about Jesus because they are all Pentecostal pastors who deny the deity of Christ. I know this may come as a shock to some of you, but that's where it's at. And also T.D. Jakes down in Dallas, he's a oneness Pentecostal. And so these are false teachers that I need to warn you about and to be aware. So it means that you need to be very careful in your listening, whether it's to music, because remember, lyrics to our Christian music is typically our take-home theology. And uh, so you need to be discerning as you li listen to Christian music as well as Christian preachers, including myself, okay? Even the Apostle Paul said, if the angels came and proclaimed another gospel, it's not true. 
Uh, so we need to remember those things. I begin last week as we introduced chapter 2. Remember the Apostle Peter here at the end of chapter 1 has talked about the sufficiency and divine origin of the Word of God. And he says that in the end of, of verse chapter 1, verse 20, but know that first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for the prophecy, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And then we have that giant number two on our page. You've got to ignore that because the argument continues. And he says, but false prophets also arose among the people. And the people is, is a synonym for the nation Israel. And he's referring back to the Old Testament. And he's saying that Israel was full of, of false teachers uh, and these were false prophets, just as there will also be false teachers among you. And so it is an ongoing issue, an ongoing uh, 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 problem or challenge within uh, the church of Christianity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mentioned last uh, week about the uh, source of the term, the fifth column. It was uh, General Emilio Mola. He was a nationalist general in the Spanish Civil, Civil War. And as he was assaulting Madrid in that terrible war, he was asked, how many columns of men do you have? And he said, I have four columns of soldiers behind me and one column in the city of Madrid. In other words, he had secret agents in, that were embedded within the city of Madrid, which gave him a powerful edge of winning the city. And that was be, one of betrayal and enmity, this fifth column. And likewise, in the church, Peter's contention is, is that there is a fifth column in the church. Not only are we buffeted from the outside, from persecution, not so necessarily so in our country, but around the world in many places, as he warned in first, the first letter of Peter, but here is this danger from the inside, this fifth column, this enemy within. It is Satan's own fifth column. I read, I just started a new book called Revival and Revivalism, and uh, there was a writer in this book. He was quoted by the author, which is Ian Murray, uh, but he was quoting Gardner Spring, and listen carefully as I read Gardner Spring's analysis of this very situation. He writes, I have somewhere heard the remark that the chariot of the gospel never has free course, but the devil tries to be the charioteer. There is nothing he is so much afraid of as the power of the Holy Spirit, where he cannot arrest the showers of blessing. It has ever been one of his devices to dilute or poison the streams. With the obvious signs of the times in view, who does not see that this artful foe would enjoy his malignant triumph if he could prejudice the minds of good men against all revivals of religion. This he does, not so much by opposing them, but by counterfeiting, counterfeiting the genuine coin and by getting up revivals that are spurious and to his liking. Revivals are always spurious when they are got up by man's device and not brought down by the Spirit of God." Unquote. Gardner Springs wrote those words in 1866, and yet they apply today to the very issue that we are discussing here that Peter is exposing to us in chapter 2 of his second letter. So what is the best defense against false teachers? Well, first of all, is to know the Word of God, to be taught the Word of God, to learn the Word of God, and to be able to spot the counterfeits that would slip in secretly. And also, it is living a vibrant, true faith that is, uh, that is uh, 
like a church filled with believers who are vibrant, that we would not fall prey to the apostates that counterfeit Christianity. And so we come today in this uh, instance, we are, we're going to do a little review. I started last week in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, the description of false teachers or the objective of false teachers. And this is one of the ways you can spot a false teacher. Peter here gives us five things to look for in false teaching. First of all, they are deceivers. The very term false teacher, is the, the Greek word is two words. It's pseudo-didaskalos. In other words, fake or false teacher is what it is. They are defined this way, so they are deceivers. It says they bring in uh, <clears throat> heretical ideas secretly. In other words, they come along beside the truth. If you listen to oneness Pentecostal pastors, you'll think, this guy's all right, but then you start listening to how they define God, how they present Jesus Christ, and you will start detecting the heresy that is involved in that worldview. Also, they are deniers. This is the key point. You always ask yourself, what do they do with Jesus? What does a false teacher do with Jesus? It says here, they denied the master who, who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They are deniers. They deny Christ's ability, perhaps it's his very divinity, to save and that he's coming back. In fact, in chapter 3, Peter is going to emphasize that our Christian hope is in the return of Christ, his second coming. Thirdly, they are destroyers. It says they destroy uh, with destructive heresies. They are not building the kingdom. They are tearing it down. Fourthly, they are degenerates. Uh, they are sensual, it says. And what, what that word means in this passage is reckless and hardened sexual immorality. And we see that through the pseudo-church that is around us in the world today. There is usually uh, money sex, and power involved in any aberration of what the church is. And then fifthly, they are desirous. They are greedy, in other words, selfish gain at the expense of others. And here it has the overtones of extortion, the overtones of extortion. Uh, when, we, when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, uh, we would go door to door in that neighborhood. And actually, the neighborhood at that time, I think it's better now, was very run down in that part of Dallas. And there were a lot of apartments and uh, like uh, low-income apartments. And we went to one lady's home. She graciously let us in, a couple guys, myself and another guy. And we started sharing the gospel with her. And she had a big picture of a well-known television evangelist up on her wall. And uh, she told us that she sent him half of her Social Security check every month, every month. And she was being duped with destructive heresies in that. We were able to share the gospel with her. But this greedy evangelist guy who was a false teacher was gaining selfish gain at the expense of this widow who lived in utter poverty, overtones of extortion. So these false teachers, even though it says they deny Christ, some would use that phrase there that the, they deny the master who, who bought them, uh, that these are believers who've lost their salvation. No, this is not the point here. They are professing some kind of belief, but they do not possess true saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that later through this chapter, that these are apostates. They have been exposed to the truth, but somewhere they have rejected the truth. 
And so the description of these false teachers ends here, at least in this section, at the end of verse 3 where it says, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Isn't there times where you just wish God would return and deal judgment upon this earth? In the mess we see, everything that's going on. And so uh, we need to recognize that God's judgment is real and it is future in many respects. And we as Christians, how are we to live in the meantime? Uh, Peter gives us three examples from the Old Testament in verses 3 through 6. He's going to tell us about this, that prove that God has judged in the past and he will judge again in the future, and he shows us what we can expect as we live here in the present. And so these destruction of false teachers that he talks about the end of verse 3, we find that his judgment is definite. His judgment is definite. Uh, suppose you were given a counterfeit bill, and you didn't know it, that it was counterfeit, and uh, it came in change you got from the grocery store, and you just put it in your wallet, And then thinking it's genuine, you went and you paid for some fuel for your car. And then it went into the bank or it went to to one of the employees of the store where you bought your fuel. And then he went and uh, bought groceries with it. And uh, from there, it went to the bank where the teller says, I'm sorry, but this bill is counterfeit. The bill may have used to do a lot of good when it was in circulation. But when it arrived at the bank, it was exposed for what it really is and it was put out of circulation. A counterfeit minister may do many good works, but still be rejected in the judgment day. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so God's judgment is definite. It is certain. We can depend upon that. God's judgment is dispensed or was dispensed. And he uses these three examples, and he goes from the greater down to the lesser. He goes from a cosmic picture here down to a local expression of his judgment. He starts with the angels who sinned. Look at verse 4 again. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And so he goes back, and remember that we know about the fall of man. It's well detailed in the Old Testament. Angels, not so much. We know there are fallen angels. We get glimpses of this, but the Bible is not primarily about the angels who fell, who became the demons. But whether or not, uh, whether uh, we understand that or not, there's this cosmic idea. The point is that he judged even the angels. In this uh, verse, it says, God judges angels who are in many respects, have more knowledge, are higher than you and I, than mankind. And he certainly, if he does that, he will judge rebellious men. Jude 6, in fact, which is a parallel passage, the little letter of Jude, gives us further details. It says there, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. It seems like some of the angels who decided to follow Lucifer, who fell from heaven, uh, some of them were bound right away in this pit of darkness, in in these chains. And God didn't spare these angels from judgment. At this very moment, they're in a place Peter uses the word Tartarus. It is a Greek word, which means a place of uh, judgment, a place of, <clears throat> of 
excuse me, a place where they are being uh, judged and held in chains. Uh, this here is, is the word Tartarus, which the Greek and Hebrew mind would understand. But it is a place of the wicked dead, essentially, and sent to the misery. And it's here they are in this holding tank, if you will, before the lake of fire that's described for us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. There's other words used for hell. Gehenna is one of those words, which we get the name or the word Gehenna from out of Matthew 5. And then there's also Hades that the scripture uses, this word that's translated hell. And it speaks about the unseen world, about this place where free moral intelligences are going. And uh, some who would destroy the church if they had the opportunity And so Peter is speaking of this unseen place. He's speaking of the judgment of these cosmic beings. Remember, angels, when they were created, were created perfectly. The angels who still serve the Lord Jesus Christ, who we read about in Isaiah chapter 6, surrounding the throne of God, these are perfect beings. There is no sin found in them. But these angels made the decision. They obviously have a decision of the will. They can make choices, and these demons made the choice, and they are bound. And so God is in the process of judging them. They are being held now. And then the second example is the ancient world. Look again at verse 5. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he goes back to the flood. Remember chapters in Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, contain as much chronological time as the rest of the Old Testament. And you can remember the outline for Genesis 1 through 11. It's the fall, the flood, and the flop. Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11. We have the fall of man, Adam and Eve, uh, the flood with Noah's flood, we call it, and then the flop is the Tower of Babel. So there you have an outline of the first 11 chapters. But the ancient world, this is a worldwide, you know, we're narrowing down from cosmic beings to a worldwide uh, destruction of the world. And God did not spare the ancient world, but he, he saved Noah. Genesis 6.3 indicates that God waited 120 years You know, some say, why doesn't God come back right now? Because he is patient, he is merciful, his grace extends, but he is not going to let his judgment go. Remember, from the time he he, uh, had Noah start building the ark, it was 120 years. And Noah is called a preacher of righteousness here or a herald of righteousness. We don't have any examples of Noah's preaching, but by his very life, By every blow of the mallet upon that ark, when he was building it for 120 years, people knew something was going to happen, and they rejected it all but his immediate family. And so if we want to read the description of the world before the flood, you read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. It was the the civilization had become so corrupt that it was necessary for God to cleanse the earth. And he only saved eight people through it. He preserved them. And uh, obviously in Noah's day, there were a lot of skeptics who made fun of him because they had not even seen rain by this point. They didn't know what a rainstorm was. They didn't know what a flood was. But yet Noah was faithful at declaring the righteousness of God and judgment fell just the same. God didn't spare the ancient world through the ancient flood. And then the third example is the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 6 with me. 
And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So our third example is recorded in Genesis 18 and 19, a story that we're very well familiar with. But God's opinion of these people is found in Genesis 13, 13. Here's God's analysis of Sodom and Gomorrah and that plain there and all the other smaller cities around. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Peter said they were ungodly. God made an example of them to warn others not to behave corruptly. Jude 7, again, we go to Jude, a parallel passage says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar matter to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forward as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal uh, fire. Uh, Peter cites these three examples of judgment. That's the point, that things got so corrupt and then Peter applied the lesson to the subject of hand of false teachers. God has reserved the unjust for special punishment on the day of judgment. The false teachers may seem successful, but in the end they will be condemned. Their judgment is being prepared now, and what is prepared will be reserved and applied on the last day. God will not spare them from his wrath. That's the point of these three examples. Each one of these illustrations make two points that Peter is using to build the case. To sum them up, the six are as follows. From the fallen angels, we learn that no one is exempt from judgment. You know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and we recognize that. Judgment, though delayed, is real, we also understand. From the flood world, we know that God's inevitable judgment can be escaped. The ark was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ rescuing us. We are to hold out the offer to others, even if they mock us. Think of 120 years, Noah trying to live a righteous life, proclaiming the truth that he knew, and they probably mocked him because nobody believed him. And then from these filthy cities, from Sodom and Gomorrah, the pattern of that judgment has been revealed. Living a godly life in an ungodly world will be difficult. You know, we sometimes find it painful. If you're trying to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's at school at your workplace, in your neighborhood, perhaps in your own home, uh, Peter's letter should encourage us and alert us uh, to the fact that if we recognize that sometimes this thing called Christianity is not only hard, it's impossible, it seems like, we need to be thankful because that means we've not compromised with the world. That is always the dangers that we compromise with the world. Ruth Graham has said, if God does not one day judge America... And we might add, by the way, I might add, by the way, whatever country we're living in, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, uh, thankfully, Revelations tells us that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, well, Corinthians does, but that the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will be taken out of the world after chapter 3 of Revelation, and then literally all hell breaks loose. And so he is the restrainer of evil. And by our presence, remember what uh, Abraham uh, asked God, you know, if there's other righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, please spare it. Do not judge it. And God said, if you can find 10 there, you know, he goes down this whole uh, spectrum. If you can find 10, I'll spare it. And he could not even find 10, only Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. And that's all that got out of there. And so uh, that is the painful clarity of it all. 
uh, how long can a human being survive in a crisis? You know, so what is our hope? The good news is that God is able to deliver the righteous. Throughout this whole passage, it speaks of God's sovereignty. He's in control of all things. He will deal his judgment at the right time, and he can deliver and rescue the righteous. How long can humans survive in a crisis? One author writes that humans can survive for just two or three minutes without air. But with some training, it's possible to hold your breath for about 11 minutes. Humans can survive for about 10 minutes at 300 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Humans can uh, endure barely 30 minutes of exposure in 40-degree water. Uh, Humans can survive up to seven days without water and about 45 days without food. But the point is, is that ultimately, even if we're the best physical specimen there is, we're only going to survive so long. So how do we ultimately get delivered from the judgment that God has promised, that he's already done, and that he's promising these false teachers and anybody who follows them? First of all, there is the deliverance of the righteous, Noah, the righteous minister. Notice again in verse 5, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others. Uh, God delivered Noah from the pollution around him. He gave the vehicle, he had the ark there to make sure they survived. He was preserved. He was taken out of the world uh, from the judgment of the world by the flood. Also in verses 7 and 8, notice that Lot, and he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, verse 8, for by what he saw and heard that the righteous man, while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And so the deliverance of a righteous man, Lot. Now, typically, we don't think of Lot as a righteous man, do we? Lot was kind of a schemer, wasn't he? Remember, he was Abraham's nephew. He took the good portion of land. Uh, he was living in Sodom. What was he doing there? And, uh, but yet, in this passage, he's called righteous three times. Uh, and notice in, back in Genesis 19.16, I want to read this for you. Uh, Noah was preserved by God. But back in chapter 19, the angels had to take Lot by the hand. He was so enmeshed in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, in the morning, when the morning dawned, the angels urged, urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, and you will, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot hesitated. So the angel seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and brought him outside the city. In fact, we know from the account that uh, no, or Lot's wife looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. She was destroyed for disobeying what God had provided. So Noah was preserved. Lot was rescued, even literally by grabbing his hand and taking him out. And Lot was still called a righteous man. What that tells us, that in spite of his waywardness, in spite of your waywardness, my waywardness, the New Testament declares that faith in God is sufficient to guarantee salvation. Faith in God is sufficient guarantee to ensure salvation, for you are saved by faith through grace. And in verse 9, we see the third deliverance of godly people, believers. Look at verse 9 with me. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. God knows this. Our present day is not unlike Noah's day. 
It is not unlike the days of Lot. Immorality abounds, especially the kind of sin Sodom was famous for. And we feel uh, you know, uh, assaulted from every side in our society and culture. And yet, what is the answer? We think of this, this idea here that God appears to be sleeping, except he is re- rescuing the godly. And our only righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. He imputes his righteousness to us, makes us acceptable to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 9, again, let me read that for us. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under judgment for, under punishment for the day of judgment. The word reserve means to guard, to take hold of, to watch over. One day soon the fire will fall and then it's too late. The professing church in our day and age, as always, it seems to have a weak testimony to the world. Most sinners, most people who don't know Christ as Savior really don't believe that judgment is coming. God's people need to be the ones to declare that God is a a mighty God and he will mercifully and graciously save you, but he will not overlook the judgment the world needs. It means to, the word uh, deliver means to save, rescue, or preserve. God could not judge Sodom until Lot and his family were out of the city. Likewise, we believe that God will not send the wrath that's described in Revelation upon the world until he takes his people home to heaven. Thess, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the problem with Lot, of course, is that not only did he live in Sodom, but he allowed Sodom to live in him somewhat. And yet, to his credit, it tells us his soul was tortured when he was exposed to the sinfulness of that city. And so for you and I, we don't want to be naive, do we? First of all, we don't want to be ignorant that uh, there will be false teachers, whether it comes through the Internet, through television, through uh, publications, perhaps in our own church somebody would come in. In fact, uh, wasn't, it was a long time ago when I first came here, uh, a very personable and winsome uh, young couple, two couples, came to our church, and uh, they sat and listened, and afterwards they asked me uh, which version of Scripture I used. I told them, and then they started pressing me on some other theological doctrinal issues. And what I realized is they were false teachers, and they were trying to work their way in. They were very winsome. They knew a lot of vocabulary, that's for sure, but I detected that they did not have our best interest in mind. Thankfully, they did not come back, uh, but yet there will be false teachers among us. P- Peter's uh, plain statements needs to remind us that we need to be protected. One of the responsibilities of the elders is spiritual oversight, spiritual protection. That's why we have an affirmation of faith. Because in and of myself, any of our elders, we don't have any authority. The only authority we have comes from the Word of God and the fact that God has called us and placed us in these positions here in this church, in this ministry. And so we need to be aware of that, uh, that they will slip in uh, unknown. Secondly, uh, one thing to recognize is there will always be skeptics and cynics who will point out our faith is inconsistent, and that we're a bunch of hypocr- we're full of hypocrisy, and that's one of the strange reasons to not follow Christ. Uh, just because there are counterfeit bills out there, does that mean you not use money? No, of course not. And so, sure, there are counterfeit Christians. There are 
hypocritical Christians out there or people who don't give the name of Christ a, a good name. And so people claim they don't want to follow Christ because of that. Uh, The existence of a counterfeit is never a good reason for rejecting the genuine. Peter essentially tells us, of course, there are counterfeit Christians. Of course, there are teachers who do more harm than good in a church. What else would you expect in this world, in this fallen world? Grow up. Don't be naive. Don't miss what's real because you have seen the counterfeit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, we do again thank you for the Apostle Peter and thank you for his life. And we thank you that you used him to write these short and small letters and yet so packed full and so appropriate and relevant to our day. And Lord, I pray for each one here that each one of us would be able to, to get all the things that come our way and put them through a, a theological grid work that we would understand when we see and hear of a false teacher. And Lord, that we would be adherents to your word, people of prayer, and that you would protect us and that we would go forward following hard after you and seeing you do the work and the mighty things that need to be done in this community and around the world. And thank you for allowing us to be part of that. In Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.